0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Eden Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going?
1: Oh god, that was close. Don't do that mm-hmm. again, America. Or do do it again. Just if you have to take a whole week to do it, bloody hell. Fine. Fine. It's not Trump. Good. Okay. Yes. Uh, that's how I am, Ed. How are you?
0: I'm pretty similar. I think I might be... I think I'm a, I am was a lot more zen over the course of this week than a lot of people were. Obviously on election night itself when like there was an early call of Trump winning Florida and winning it by you know by Floridian standards by a pretty healthy margin, you know, winning by yeah, like, yeah. like three points. Which is the the second largest win after uh Bush winning it in two thousand and four. Everything else is like less than two points. That, you know, obviously gave me like a a a a little bit of a sinking feeling. But at the same time I was thinking, well, you know, Biden doesn't really need Florida in order to become the president. So him not winning it isn't the worst thing in the world. And then just like the rest of the night being like, Oh, this is looking a lot closer than a lot of people seem to think it was going to be. But then around two in the morning when Arizona was called for Biden, uh, possibly prematurely, but you know, like regardless, you know, it was called for him. That left me feeling like really good. That was basically when I went to bed. I kind of thought, okay, that feels like a good move if he's winning arizona then he's probably gonna win michigan and pennsylvania and wisconsin like and they may be close but i feel like you know that so i felt reasonably good when i went to bed then the next morning things had like more or less stayed the same but then biden's lead in those or biden's like deficit in those states started to decrease and eventually you know he started leading on all of them that was when I started to feel like, okay, this feels good. So I I, I don't necessarily, fit. Di- I didn't feel like anxious in the way that I think a lot of people did. Um, yeah. But I just felt, I definitely felt frustrated as it kind of like dragged on, particularly once you got to like Thursday or even as early as like late on Wednesday when like all of the elections expert that I follow were all saying like, yeah, I think Biden's going to win this. Like, the the, the trends are not in Trump's favour, so I think Biden's probably going to win it. Just that sense of, like, okay, pretty much everyone is, is certain about where this is going, it's just that the journey to get there feels like it's taking a long time, and that kind of makes it feel way worse. I think, you know, is what, in, like, retrospect, when people look back on this election in the future... I think that's the thing that will probably get lost is people will look at it and think, "Oh, Biden won by like five or six million votes, and he got three hundred and six electoral uh, votes in the Electoral College." Not a particularly close election, but like the experience of watching those votes kind of trickle in, I think are probably going to leave an indelible impact on all of us who have been following the election, uh, perhaps too closely to our own detriment over the last <laughs> over the last year.
1: Yeah. I mean does this mean that there'll be no more of I'm just looking forward to SNL not doing political sketches for a while because they've not been great
0: mm, yeah that's that's the weird kind of like fallacy really that I think really started with like the 2008 election where obviously you had Tina Fey coming back to play Palin which was this like real galvanizing iconic thing that got the the show great ratings like I think the Consensus then seemed to be like, oh, well, you know, SNL's really good in election years. Like, they really kind of, like, bring their A-game. And I feel like we've had three straight cycles now where that has absolutely not been <laughs> the case. Absolutely. Where, like, they've... Uh, the jokes have been pretty flaccid. Arguably, they, you know, facilitated Trump's rise by allowing him to host and then by lawn, you know, as, as Taron Killam said in, uh, I think, on... Um, Oh, what was it on Matt Gawley's podcast? I was there too, where he basically said that Lorne's guidance was to take it easy on Trump because, you know, they, they still wanted him to like host at some point and they all assumed he would lose. Yeah, like I think the idea that SNL has much to say in terms of trench and political comedy, uh, hopefully, uh, is dead now because, yeah, well, I think we've got 12, uh, uh, like eight years worth now to say that, yeah, they don't really have much of any value to say.
1: And I think so much of what Tina Fey did with Sarah Palin was a great impression that Mm -hmm. also was kind of based off exactly what Palin was saying and just kind of elucidating it a bit more and kind of running it for comic effect. And Mm. the closest that SNL has got to satire in a really long time is when Hillary Clinton was on and Kate McKinnon as Hillary sort of took her to task for not Going for same sex and gay marriage mm. and that's the that like SNL doesn't really have teeth like it can be quite um catty but it's never actually satirical and the wild thing is is that Maya Rudolph has Kamala Harris down and yeah they decided to just do a really kind of you know quite bland um cold open. Mm. There there are a couple of nice moments, but that's all that SNL does politically now. It's flash-in-the-pan stuff, which is wild considering when, like, Chris Kelly was head writer, and... I I don't know. It just doesn't really have a sense of itself anymore. Like... And I think it used to... And I think you're right. I think it all went... The whole sense of um, its importance went to its own head after Tina Fey. Because before, you know, you had... Dana Carvey and various people sort of doing impersonations. And I think um, even um, the late great Phil Hartman did as well. But yeah, I I mean, I'm glad it's not Trump. That's all I'll mm-hmm. say,
0: <laughs> Yeah, I think the nice thing over the last couple of days, um, particularly yesterday, Saturday, when the call was finally made and there was like the real outpouring of joy from people uh, was that there's a lot of people who I know for a fact are not fans of Joe Biden who like supported Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or you know even Buttigieg in the primaries who are basically like saying like it's fine for us all to feel joy right now yeah that shouldn't obviously there's still lots of problems there's still things that the left in America needs to do to kind of try and, like, engage people. And obviously, I think that the results of the election show that they take some of their core constituencies for granted, particularly, you know, the fact that I don't think they did enough work to make sure that like Latinos showed up in the numbers that they needed or that they were persuading them to vote over, like, the disinformation that the Trump campaign was putting out in order to try and lower their margins with them. But And obviously that's not even getting into, like, you know, climate change and all this other stuff that's, like, coming down the pike that you're really going to have to try and work super hard to try and do anything about. But everyone, I think, can be fine to take a day or two or a week to just think, you know, we did it. We knocked an out-fascist out of office through democracy, which is... Something that basically never happens. Like it's something that pretty much is unprecedented in in world history. Like fascists tend not to get voted out. Uh, it tends to be more involving lampposts. So, so that I think it's it's good that everyone's able to just like take a moment and just be like, yeah, we did it. Like all of this energy and money and all of the anxiety and fear was worth it. And now there is a chance of. Things improving, and at the very least, you know, not getting as bad as I think a second Trump term absolutely would have been. Completely. So we'll go into our news for this week because I think, as, as you and I were talking earlier, earlier in our kind of like a pre-production meeting before recording, <laughs> neither of us really have done very much culturally this week because uh, the election was eating at our minds. Uh, so. we'll <laughs> We'll just go on to the news for this week, and again, the election just kind of took all the air oxygen out of the room, so like there wasn't really a huge amount. But on Friday, there was the announcement that Johnny Depp has been asked to resign from the uh, Fantastic Beast franchise, the kind of little loved spin off series of the Harry Potter uh, series, where he played the character Grindelwald to everyone's dismay. Because um, on the uh, just on the fact that people just don't like him as an actor anymore, like he has lost a lot of people's interest because he has become a very boring actor, but also more fundamentally because uh, he just seems to be like a really awful person, and yeah, you know, there's obviously credible uh, accounts of uh, accusations of abuse against him and and all this sort of thing, and for a long time Warner Brothers didn't seem to have any interest in asking him to stand down, even though you know there was a Pretty significant amount of pressure from people saying, "Yeah, this guy uh, shouldn't be involved in this franchise. He's really dragging it down. He's not even very good in them." You know, and there was all this kind of like there are all these reasons why he should step down. But they kind of stood by him, and so it's very interesting that it's kind of reached this point largely because uh, Johnny Depp lost a libel lawsuit against the Sun, I believe, yes. which uh, you know uh, uh, dealt with you know his his divorce from uh, Amber Heard and the kind of two-way accusations of abuse that have been going on in that case. And that seems to make his uh, position untenable. But it it does, it does did strike me as very interesting that that finally happened, considering it's something that I think people have been saying should happen for quite a while.
1: Yes, for a big week for people leaving things that they should have left a long time ago. Mm. And that yeah. this seems to be what's done it is very strange. And I wonder what's available, what's around in terms of when contracts are up. Mm. I mean, he's been asked to leave, but is it just they had him contracted for a while? Production has halted because of COVID. And now this is the chance to oust him. It's a really strange moment, Ed, when you find yourself rooting for the sun. (laughs) 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 And... I don't want to get into the ins and outs of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard but frankly everyone should be ashamed of themselves on how they've reported every angle of this the mm. the kind of the the continued adoration and fandom of Johnny Depp I find really strange just because he hasn't been very good for a long time as well in terms of his roles like he did a Keith Richards uh, Russell Brand mashup in Pirates of the Caribbean, mm. I used to really like his work um, in the in the early days, and then something just went. Ugh, yeah, I don't know. But also, all I'll say, Ed, is that maybe maybe they brought out the worst in each other. That's all I am going to say. And again, the sort of strangeness of J.K. Rowling's uh, Rowling, Rowling, Bowie, Bowie, mm-hmm. <laughs> the big the big turf, the turf he must not be named. She despite having set up a charity for survivors of domestic abuse was all right with johnny depp still being and sort of being quite public about supporting him still being in the franchise very strange i mean i don't know whether they'll replace him or whether the fantastic beasts franchise will go ahead i mean ezra miller's still there isn't he mm. uh, and uh, i'd Remain. say <laughs> yeah yeah hmm. Yeah, I'd say, you know, oh, he only attacked one fan. I think that's one fan too many.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's Yeah, it's very weird looking at that franchise because like they went into it with such high expectations, didn't they? Like they were saying, Oh, it's gonna be five movies and you know, we're gonna really, you know, show people all of this backstory of the Harry Potter franchise that everyone's obviously been like dying to hear. And then the first one came out and was like at best a modest success you know, compared to the previous movies. Very much seemed that there was a limit to how much people cared about the lore of the Harry Potter universe that, you know, and it underpinned that what people liked about that was, you know, oh, it's these like charming kids going to school and there's wizards and magic and like no one was like obviously there are people who are interested in like the broader world and, you know, like we'll go to Pottermore for you know details about that sort of thing or whatever or you know have read some of the supplemental books and obviously you know there's a thriving fan uh uh, fan fiction community all around it but you know fundamentally if you're talking at the sort of the huge audiences that flocked to those movies over the years when they were coming out I think a lot of it was down to the the charisma of the actors but also just like the fact that it was this you yeah, know a, a, a fairly relatable story you know a coming of age story told over seven movies well seven eight eight movies with the last one being split in two and that was kind of like the key thing not necessarily that everyone wants to find out oh what was it like what was magic like in new york in the 20s mm-hmm. like that's not necessarily kind of like a big a big draw and so now they have seem to have uh really limited their scope for it all by saying i think at the, at they've cut it down to like maybe three movies now, like the third one they're working on now might be the last or the, the fourth one, if they ever make it will be the last and that they seem to have just they're, they're, they're very much in this position of it being all kind of sunk cost at this point like, we've put so much money into keeping this franchise going that we can't stop even if that means that we have to replace Johnny Depp with someone else uh, presumably they'll just do what they did in the first one and be like oh, he's drunk drunker. Uh, transformation potion but this time i don't know the wind went the wrong way and he's stuck that way and we can get colin farrell back because uh, <laughs> spoilers for the end of fantasy beasts uh, in the first one it's colin farrell until the end when johnny depp shows up yeah which i think would be a, a trade in the right direction I, and i really enjoyed various people online when the news broke like sharing stories of, like basically saying when they went to see the first movie the entire audience groaning when Colin Farrell turned into Johnny <laughs> Depp, just being like, oh no, what? Ah oh, no, we were enjoying this, and now, now we've got to deal with this weirdo." Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's an int- it's going to be an interesting series. I think for people to do an autopsy of if and when this third and maybe final movie comes out, just being like where did this go wrong? Because it really feels as if, like, bad decisions were made at every level and at most most points along the way.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Ed. Like, particularly that sort of demographic and thinking, oh, there'll be enough young adults who were interested in Harry Potter as children to kind of follow this, like, well, it's the sort of darker, gritty reboot, isn't it? When mm. it might have done better as a series yeah. instead of, like, a big movie franchise.
0: Yeah, I think that would seem to have been the logical thing but i I guess there's less money in doing it as a tv series uh, than if than if you were making those movies and they all made like one and a half billion dollars or whatever they were hoping for but yeah it definitely feels like uh, maybe maybe a tv show would have made the most sense for if you wanted to really expand the harry potter universe but then again maybe that would just bump up against the limitations of what you can kind of do with that world, because as, as kind of like filled out as it is in the books, and as much as like J.K. Rowling has you know kind of spent time filling in those details again on Potter uh, often to a hilarious effect, like I'm not sure that there would necessarily be like a huge audience to sit down and watch like a network TV show about auras or whatever. Like like that doesn't necessarily seem like something that would really translate. Like maybe it's one of those big fantasy franchises where the, the the core kind of appeal of it really is down to those original seven books and everything that you do kind of around it never really captures that magic. <laughs> just like, just a, I, I felt disappointed in myself as I realised where that sentence was going. <laughs> it's like, oh wait, no, I'm going to have to say it. Yes, the, the can't recapture the magic. Um, it, it It is very yeah it's just very weird when you see like a studio having to go all in on it and i think it, it is also a reflection of the fact that warner brothers are there obviously still a very big studio but they i don't feel like they have like a wealth of franchises that they can really go to obviously they've got the dc stuff and that's been kind of hit or miss for them so clearly they felt like that was the ace in the hole for them was having the the harry potter brand and being able to you know. Expand it in some way seemed like a a surefire hit, and to an extent it has been because those first two movies did okay. But yeah, like I I have to imagine they're looking at the balance sheets of it and thinking, yeah, this 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 hasn't turned out how we hoped. Yeah. In other news, there was some uh, sad news uh, this week: the news that uh, John Sessions had passed away. John Sessions, uh, of course, hugely famous in the UK. Well, I I guess he's fairly well known in the UK. For his work as a comedian, as a sketch performer, as a, an impressionist, as uh, someone who I think anyone who grew up watching TV in the nineties in the UK would be familiar, particularly comedy, like if you're watching Stella Street, which is what I mainly associate him with, mm. or the the you know the original British series of whose line is it anyway, which he was like incredibly funny, very quick uh, improvisation, and just one of those people who every time he showed up in something, you were just You were just happy to see him because you knew he was going to do some something good. Very much, you know, you mentioned him earlier. Very much like a Phil Hartman kind of figure, like Mm -hmm. not necessarily someone who was like a huge star in his own right, but someone who just always brought it, regardless of what he was doing.
1: Yeah, he was just quality, and I think, yeah, pretty well known in the UK as exactly that kind of solid character actor and for me I think the first thing I ever saw him in was the BBC adaptation of Gormenghast Mm -hmm. Uh, the the Mervyn Peake adaptation and he was just like really sinister and like licking every word he said (laughs) like (laughs) he was clearly just having the best time he was also in Skins Um, I think some people may sort of recognise him but he was just kind of in everything really and you know like Politically, he was quite outspoken Um, or maybe not outspoken. He was, you know, he sort of voiced mild support for UKIP at one point because he was a Eurosceptic. But in terms of how quick he was on Whose Line Is It Anyway and a spitting image like his mimicry and a lot of people said how, you know, warm he was as a person and I think it was just sad because again, it's one of those things where he died of a heart attack, and he, it just felt like he was going to be in everything forever, mm. as that real, yeah. Serious, like, yeah, recognizable face and character actor.
0: Yeah, and then being fairly young, only being you know, 67, yeah sixty-seven, which is, as they say, no age. Very very young, especially as as someone who was still very very active. Like you know, you look at the the recent work he was in. Most recently, he was in The Great. the the hugely enjoyable Hulu show about Catherine the Great with uh, uh, Elle Fanning. And just, yeah, like you say, just one of those people who just always showed up, was always good, and uh, will be sorely missed. And then breaking news, and the the, the news literally kind of like uh, hit the airwaves just a few hours before we started recording, Uh, Alex Trebek has passed away, the legendary game show host of Jeopardy, most notably uh, in the US, who's been battling uh, pancreatic cancer for the best part of the last two years. And as someone who obviously grew up in the UK and didn't see a lot of Jeopardy, but would you know, would often occasionally catch it over the, the recent years or would watch repeats every so often and catch clips of it, particularly on, YouTube, on um, Twitter. People would love sharing clips from Twitter of, uh, you know, kind of like, Alex Trebek's being surprisingly savage to people if they told a personal story and it just completely flopping Uh, I found him to be just like an immensely appealing person like he seemed very wry and very funny but also was so charming and definitely seemed like from every account I ever heard of him like a truly like decent person that everyone really really loved being around and I think the outpouring of support that came for him when he first announced that he had pancreatic cancer and when he would record updates letting people know how his recovery was going or how his treatment was going uh, I think really attested to the love that people of like a huge swathe of Americans of multiple generations had for him as this person who uh, they really enjoyed inviting into their homes pretty much every day
1: the outpouring on twitter is like nothing i've ever seen because i think being canadian as well and then getting his citizenship i think in the late 90s i want to say that there is this great uniting character that everyone american and canadian wanted to associate with his values and that he was incredibly hospitable but not a doormat and every time he poked fun there was like a little bit of an edge to him that people could help yeah. but feel like okay yeah no that's fair and the takes being that he's actually one of the most significant cultural figures and it's like yeah i mean it's sort of similar to mr rogers but almost even a wider reach because he's not just looking for children it's a very family you know a, this sort of quiz show is like a huge demographic mm. and seeing sort of Twitter videos of people saying they learn English watching him you know watching with their parents who just emigrated or grandparents and people sort of saying you know just the sort of tomber of his voice and it's wild to think he was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer and he survived for mm. like a year with that I mean that in itself is like medically phenomenal um but yeah the sort of wide reaching span that he that he had and that he was on television for so long clearly loved his job clearly loved everything he was doing and every person that he met and i think the uk are going a bit like oh wow okay but in terms of how he'd pop up and be mentioned in so many like there's a great bit in the simpsons that i was reminded of thanks to twitter of him being exactly the opposite of his warm friendly self and kind of looking to Marge to make up the difference of what she lost
0: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: and it's just yeah what a day for America I think genuinely like politically and culturally because there is a lot to celebrate I think a lot of people will be absolutely devastated because I I don't think we have an equivalent in the UK of someone who has been there sort of reliably (laughs) for light entertainment and and warmth
0: Mm. I mean, Brucey was probably the last one.
1: Yeah, in actually, that
0: respect, uh, and obviously he died a few years ago. Yeah, but yeah, like they, there's not that many really that have that sense of like just consistency of just always being there and having uh, you know that cross generational appeal. Like you can really tell that watching Jeopardy because it was on the air for so long was like a real touch point for so many people of like it was a thing they watched with their parents and then when they had kids they watched yes. with their kids and things like that
1: yeah and to sorry but to be on one show as well
0: mm, That was his whole yeah.
1: whole job for for years
0: yeah and to still clearly get such a kick out of it as well yeah It was such a nice thing to see
1: i mean do you think do you think jeopardy will continue
0: probably i know that they've had i'm pretty sure they've had like guest hosts in the past and like I'm, I'm they could probably go to like Ken Jennings who obviously is like the, the the person or the second most winning person on that show ever in terms of the total number of times they've won it so there there are definitely people they could go to but yeah I'm not I'm not sure who they would necessarily feel like would be their like immediate choice like it's hard to think of anyone who could really just step into that role instantly and still carry that sense of of warmth but also of kind of like Stability to it. Yeah. That real comforting sense of like Jeopardy's going to be on every day, and you know, Alec Trebek is going to be there to, you know, ask people questions and have them and like just tear them in, tear, tear into them in a nice, light, funny way if they have absolutely no clue uh, about sport or whatever.
1: Yeah.
0: So we'll go on to the main topic for this week, which is kind of a nebulous about just elections in general particularly I guess with a view on American elections obviously because uh, we just had one and you know decent result Uh, (laughs) I think it's fair to say but yeah it's obviously been playing on our minds and so I think we wanted to talk about the the history of elections on screen and you know American presidents and things like that Uh, but but to start off I wanted to kind of talk about the pop culture around this particular election Mm. because like you were saying about SNL, not a great season, didn't really feel as if they were contributing much to the conversation in any meaningful way, Uh, hard to think of much that really lingered in any major way, uh, anything that went viral in any significant way but it does feel like one, as, as someone who spends a lot of time on Twitter as I do and as a lot of people do. It did feel like a election where there were lots of things that just became memes that have really persisted in some ways. For example, yeah. um, the one that I always think of and that I see, I'm surprised to see people referencing still, but it still makes me laugh. Is uh, when Trump was diagnosed with COVID, there was a report, there was a report doing the rounds that he said, uh, "Am I going to go out like Chera? who was a real estate friend of his who had died of COVID several months earlier. And so now every so often I just see people like posting, going out like Stan chair over like pictures of, you know, over like an, an image from a movie of someone dying or something like that to kind of reference it. And I feel like in terms of like the pop culture of this election, those are the things that really stick out to me more. And I think that's especially true just in the last day with the... Farrago around the uh, four seasons total landscaping press conference that was held yesterday, which has produced just some of the biggest laughs I've had in relation to the the election in the whole year
1: for sure, I think that's the thing that we've sort of discussed gently about kind of younger senators and like how a o c uses new media compared to mm. some of the others, and that it's absolutely a that's sort of the new. I wouldn't say battleground, but, like, the new front line are things like teens on TikTok, for example, who are calling mm. the election fraud hotline um, and <laughs> flooding it with their own prank calls. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, delightful. I, I entirely um, support this level of uh, civil disobedience, um, particularly mm. when it's, it involves Seymour Butts. Like, it's a, it's a <laughs> classic. And the sort of resurgence of back in 2016 how people channeled their disappointment into trying to make cheeky Biden a thing where mm-hmm. it was like Biden being like, I'm not giving them the wifi password or like make everything <laughs> small so that his hands are, you know, or make everything giant. So his hands are even bigger. And Obama's like, no, you know, no Joe, I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think the sort of lifespan of memes is so fast now and like that takes can kind of like come through it's hard to sort of settle on one in particular but i think it's just the absolute sort of (laughs) kind of like (laughs) pleading that came through Mm. and that there wasn't anything particularly memeable about either of the campaigns like yeah you know that biden and harris didn't have a tagline they didn't have a slogan it was literally just the two of them which essentially translated to not Trump, like mm. they, 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 it was it. You could leave it unspoken. <laughs> they didn't need to have anything other than that, so there wasn't a lot to sort of grab onto, either way. But I've enjoyed like through the election as well on Twitter, people sort of supporting. Is it Jonathan King on MSNBC and um, yeah, and uh, Steve Kanaki as like the mm. Map Men, <laughs> sort of. and everyone almost kind of like staying up with them being like what are they on how are they keeping going but i think it's just the sheer adrenaline of like this is where i get to use my touch screen and like the level of analysis that they had was like stunning to see
0: Mm. the uh the best joke i saw about steve kornacki was from grace spellman who said um cnn have got or msnbc whichever one he's on have been giving him Beatles in hamburg pills (laughs) 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 Just to kind of keep him going, which was uh, a hugely enjoyable reference to me and I thought really uh, encapsulated the, the, the sense of awe that I think a lot of people had about him as he was just constantly on television for like five days and really seemed to be thriving on the adrenaline of it, adrenaline of it all in a way that uh, yeah, made me feel a little worried for himself and hope, hope, hoping that he uh, gets a nice nice bit of sleep. <laughs> now that the results are in or the results are more or less known.
1: Absolutely. And I have also been enjoying this at UK-based memes where everyone's been like, yeah, sure, these uh, fireworks are for you guys, not for our <laughs> twisted history with our own government. Nah, 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 cool. Yeah, it's a parade for you if you want it to be.
0: <laughs> Speaking more broadly, like what do you think there's any kind of like, obviously it's it's early to be having dissections on the Trump Era, I guess, but can you think of any like pieces of art from this era that you'd be able to point back to, like in years to come, to show to people and say, "Yeah, that's what it felt like"? Because I feel like there have been lots of people trying to make the art that would that would do that, and you know, there's all that kind of like argument of like, "Oh, you know, like it's going to be bad, but the the music's going to be so good, or whatever." Like thinking oh, yeah. there would be this great great resurgence of art, but like for me literally the only thing I can think of that feels like it will stand the test of time that you can point to and say yeah this really feels like it captures a lot of what it felt like on a day-to-day basis is going to be like Connor O'Malley <laughs> in just his videos
1: yeah I'd have to agree with you there I think the interesting thing is as well about Connor O'Malley is that really what he was encapsulating was a Trump supporter mm. and, and it was more a kind of it was never kind of an analysis of Trump it was an analysis of who voted for Trump who wanted and needed Trump and I don't think anything's ever quite been able to capture Trump I think also maybe well because he's such a huge character and a caricature as all fascist populist dictators are and we've got you know a wealth of impressions that are a dearth of anything close to him. Because Peter Serafinowicz was talking about that as distinctive as Trump is, everyone thinks they can do his voice, but to actually do a a canny, spot-on impression of him is actually very difficult because his voice Mm. modulates so much. And, you know, there's kind of little sort of broad strokes that people can do that you can recognise him from, but he's actually quite different, which is why Serafinowicz did, like, sassy Trump I think yeah I think impersonating Trump in general is sort of has been like the major trend because there's not really another way to everyone's just been so glued to him there's not actually mm. and like he just take he's just been taking up all of the oxygen in the room and so everyone's trying to emulate that whatever side they're on i mean mainly the left i guess and you know Sarah Cooper blew up because of like mouthing him on on tiktok and i, I actually prefer suze kempner reading out trump's speeches as liza minnelli <laughs> like that's class um but yeah so peter Serafinowicz ended up doing like sassy trump which is where uh sassy justice like he and um parker and stone sort of all came together to do but he uh, yeah in terms of the art and stuff i mean there's not really been anything I can point to apart from maybe like the Joe Rogan experience, but not mm. in, but in a kind of like but that's what that's the zenith of that. I'm not saying you know that anything was necessarily like good. I and and I think when when governments are failing and killing their own people, art then has to step in and sort of shoulder the social burden, which I don't think art is actually made to made for to do. I think how how can you raise awareness about something you can't escape mm. and I think that's the thing about yeah. living under fascism it's like well yeah you're just echoing what's already being said and sort of looking for like solutions or whatever I don't I don't know it, I mean this is it Ed. maybe it is a bit too early which is why I'm sort of stammering quite a lot but I think it's an excellent question and one that will take a long time to kind of extrapolate because either you were sort of stuck it you were sort of so immersed in it and couldn't escape from it and a lot of people couldn't really turn to it and all I all I really remember is the outnumbered Christmas special Mm -hmm. (laughs) of uh, uh, 2016 and um, every so often the parents were just gonna go oh are you all right like yeah I've just remembered about Trump and (laughs) and I think that's it it's and I really despise the oh, at least art will be great. No, like, art now has to shoulder being a tool of resistance, which it can be, but that's even more exhausting, and any art that isn't seen to be resistance, even if politically it's very sound, is dismissed, and it's like, no, we shouldn't have to be in this emer- like state of emergency. I thought yeah. we were done with fascism. I thought, have you not seen not seen cabaret or the sound of music i thought we'd kind of covered this yeah but like conor o'malley you pimp absolutely like
0: yeah yeah i think the like conor o'malley i think the art that i think stands out to me as being like the most genuinely valuable in that it's both really funny but also like genuinely made a point it was the stuff that just really points out the absurdism of it all like anything that try to like try and engage with the situation head on I think ends up feeling very I don't know it f- ends up feeling very skin deep as a result and I feels mean. like it's a, th- a very kind of like weak thing to be like yes this is all very bad and it's like yeah I'm not really learning anything new by you telling me <laughs> that things are bad yeah and for me the people that really are the coronary I think. The kind of edits that uh, Vic Berger has done over the last couple of years really kind of get to the absurdity of all the way he would take like Trump speeches or whatever, and like just like hype up the weird ticks of his that just like drew out the total absurdity of him as a person, as in a speaker, and would like really highlight just the ridiculousness of him. I think yeah was was good at making a satirical point without necessarily devaluing the danger that I think everyone was in. Mm. Uh, a recent also addition to that in a similar way is uh, James Austin Johnson who I think does a great Trump impression. He, he posts lots of videos on Twitter where he'll do an impression of Trump but he'll be talking about completely banal things like there was a for the, the, the the infamous 60 Minutes interview where Trump, uh, Trump walked out of it he did this whole thing where he was just talking about the characters in, in um, Gilmore Girls and Uh raising the boyfriends and what was really fascinating about that is not only was it just really uncanny how well he got the mannerisms of trump down it was i think genuinely quite valuable in pointing out the fact that like of being able to like separate him as a speaker from his hateful rhetoric and making me as someone who just like totally disagrees with trump politically and thinks that he's a terrible terrible person And wants nothing but bad things to happen to him. Being able to see, oh, I understand his appeal now. Because, like, when you take away the rhetoric and you just have someone talking in this weird, loping, tangential style where you're trying to follow along and you're like thinking, where is this going? And makes it apply to something that uh, you actually vaguely care about, like, you know, assessing. Yeah, the the, the the boyfriends on Gilmore Girls. Um, then you kind of, like, I feel like that genuinely gets to the appeal of him as a person. You suddenly, like, that, for me, did more to clarify why people are drawn to him than, like, any other political analysis I've ever seen, because suddenly it was like, oh, yeah, like, the way this guy speaks is genuinely, like, quite funny and engaging. It's just that a lot of the time he's saying just utterly abhorrent and terrible and dangerous things. Yeah, And that's that, to me, feels like the only... One of the few examples, like, certainly of recent art or comedy or satire that tried to engage with the appeal of Trump and, like, really understood it. And I think the real testament to kind of, like, the dearth of really great art that really kind of, like, tackles this this whole era is that when I try and think of, like, what would be a piece of art that I would show someone to try and explain the Trump era, I inevitably end up thinking about stuff that came out before 2016. yeah. Like, I think oh yeah probably Wolf of Wall Street (laughs) he really wanted to kind of have a sense of the appeal of Trumpism you you just show them saying and this is what this is what a lot of those kind of people would think of themselves as or this is like the appeal of it of this like brash leader that just keeps going and going and going like all the stuff that predicted Trump or that just kind of like looked at the vein of or the energy of a certain strain of American culture and put it out into the world and literalized it. Those are the kind of works of art that I feel are more valuable than all the people like suddenly flailing around and trying to think of something to make sense of it all.
1: Yeah, I think oh, you're so right, Ed. And I think so much of like sort of un- trying to understand and unpick Trump is the kind of run up to it as well. Because even though mm. it came seemingly out of nowhere for those in the liberal bubble. It was happening for a long time. And yeah. the fact that he wasn't taken seriously, and that a lot of people who voted for him felt that they weren't being taken seriously either. And I think the only, I think because only because I've sort of seen it recently, and I think because sort of production seemed to be, if not rushed through, then definitely capitalized on things happening as they did, is the Borat sequel i think is one of the few things i've seen that and again probably not necessarily accurate but definitely a slice of what was happening in the immediacy of it
0: Mm. yeah i think another example that i just thought of as well it is in terms of like a piece of art that really seemed to predict trump in a way that now seems eerie is uh the tim heidecker neil hamburger series on cinema yeah where for yeah like that show started in what like 2011 and i think around 2014 was when they really started to emphasize like the, the tim heideck character going on this extreme right wing swing in his life and his views <laughs> and like by the time so like by the time like trump was running for the nomination and everything like he was fully like this embodiment of a certain kind of like just like furiously angry right-wing media persona and it's and i you know watched a little bit of on cinema when it started but then didn't really start watching it in 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 earnest until like last year and it was really eerie watching it and seeing like tim's character change in that way and oh realising, like, oh, wow, he was really, like, tapping into this thing to the extent that you would think that if you showed this to someone you didn't tell them when the episodes were airing, you would think it was, like, they had planned this out and be like, oh, we're going to show you the, sh- the slow kind of growing insanity of this character as he becomes more and more extreme as a way of reflecting, you know, the build-up to Trump getting elected when, in fact, you know, he, like, Tim Heidecker, for whatever reason, was really tapping into that idea like startlingly early and like then just running with it
1: absolutely i think the one thing that i can think of that is um i think a really amazing character study and something that isn't overtly satirical and not overtly critical but neither is it completely completely kind of dismissive and saying oh let's just all get together and we'll all be all right we're all you know unity and all this kind of thing is Jonathan Demme's last film Ricky and the Flash
0: mm, Yeah,
1: because it's one of the few things I've seen where it's a protagonist who is incredibly flawed you know very talented country singer made some bad choices and like Ricky would have voted for Trump she'd probably have played at Trump rallies um, mm, Yeah, but, but I remember finding that uh, like appealing more to her humanity but not dismissing her views but still kind of threading that in and i think that's mm. something i might come back and rewatch now that we're let's not forget trumpism isn't over <laughs> but no. in terms of this term being done
0: good <laughs> mm. so to kind of look uh more broadly outside of this uh this particular election what are some movies that you think that that you think of when you think of elections and you know politics in America more more generally you know going back into into the history of cinema
1: well the first two that spring to mind are election
0: Mm. because that is
1: just an amazing allegory I think because even though it's about high school I think it manages to show how early this kind of ambition and entitlement starts the farce of public facing (laughs) office the constant question of like morality and ethics and how, how completely American it is as well. I think um, Reese Witherspoon is amazing in it. Sort of the whole idea of rigging and democracy and fairness, disgrace, but then also wag the dog um, mm. because, and I remember seeing that when I was very young and I want to watch it again. But that idea of like well before fake news, you know, just the idea that you could manipulate, like, the lengths that people will go to 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 manipulate approval ratings and then not so much about elections but in terms of, like, American politics like Aaron Sorkin's first big sort of of melodramatic romance The American President Mm -hmm. where, you know, the idea of scandal is very delicate and you know, people have to live within very certain lines and you know the score is just swelling at every given moment, and I mean the knitwe the knitwear Ed is something else <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's a movie that feels like it's very much existing within a a world of norms uh <clears throat> <as> we we're, <throat> so we're talking about an era where norms have constantly been shattered, that one feels especially quaint now, I think, in some ways, like a very enjoyable fun romantic comedy, but like all romantic drama rather. But, like, so much of it is about, like, propriety and things like that, things that now seem, like, very old-fashioned. I think, also, that that was kind of something that happened to that movie very quickly after it came out as well, because, obviously, Michael Douglas, I think, has a certain Clintonian quality to him. Like, that's the kind of president he's he's meant to be. And then, like, two or three years later, obviously, like, the Monica Lewinsky kind of, like, scandal yeah. happened. And I think that, yeah, that that is obviously, like, separate from anything to do with the American president, but I think it does kind of, like, it's one of those things that really altered people's image of the office in in certain ways, more, uh, almost as much as, like, you know, the way that I think Watergate led to a reevaluation of the men who have held the office or could hold the office in the realm of fiction. I feel like that's when you start to see a real upswing in movies about presidents who are secretly evil in some way going all the way up to you know something as uh kind of like potboilery as absolute power the clint eastwood movie where gene hackman plays the president and uh, he strangles someone to death in the oval office which is uh, it's a fine fine movie you know like really really good entertaining movie but it's one of those things where i think you know it kind of takes that trend of like making movies where people question power to kind of a a somewhat silly extreme in the sense of, like, you know, a a president being bad because uh, they personally kill someone as opposed to, you know, abstractly killing many, many people in other parts of the world. Mm. In terms of um, movies specifically around elections, I think one of the ones that I really think of a lot is the Hal Ashby movie Shampoo.
1: Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Which is not directly about the 1972 election, but that is happening in the background. You know, it's all about... The whole story takes place over the course of a day or two around about Nixon's re-election. And so, like, there's this, like, air of all these characters kind of, like, going about their lives as this, like, huge, momentous thing is about to happen. And it's one of those movies that I think, you know, does a really good job of illustrating, like... People just kind of like going about their lives whilst big events are happening in the background it's one of those movies that i kind of wonder what a modern day equivalent of it is because i feel like you could get something really interesting out if you tried to make a movie about you know people just going about their lives whilst the uh whilst the 2016 election was going on because i think you know there would be a lot of interesting drama to be got out of that but also you maybe run the risk of everything just being a little too obvious but then again, that was a very obvious oh. election. So
1: Yeah, and I guess like other films that sort of kind of have the election as in the background and not necessarily focusing on it with a laser a laser concentration in the forefront, like kind of how American films are still dealing with Nixon, like mm-hmm. and the three that sort of spring to mind, you know, um, all the president's men, Dick, which is still like a delight. <laughs> and Very mm. silly. Frost, Nixon, Elvis yeah. versus Nixon, like still not quite being able to sort of like how serious to take him or how to lampoon him, like to make mm. him like properly mockery or quite how serious it, it was and how to handle that. And I guess mm. the other film, just as you were talking about shampoo, there Ed, that sprung to my mind. I was like, oh yeah, there's a whole bit in Donnie Darko because Dukakis. yeah, like, and that yeah, that yeah. is something that's simmering underneath of the sort of threat of of the world and the kind of political split of the family that that doesn't is it doesn't sort of come back to. And I wouldn't say that Donnie Darko is in any way a political film, but it gave it a little bit of grounding that I think was a nice example of how you can involve. Politics in terms of making your world as real as possible. If you're going to go to the sort of like lengths of fantasy that you do with Frank the Bunny, but yeah, yeah just yeah, that sort of plausibility in the background.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's it's interesting in in Donny Dark as well because I think there is obviously this image of you know Dukakis absolutely getting destroyed by George W. Bush and making it seem like it was this very one side uh, George H. W. Bush rather getting really destroyed in that election and it being this very one-sided contest to basically say, like, oh, no, like, you know, there were people who had very strong feelings about George H.W. Bush and about the Reagan administration wanting to put Dukakis in to kind of undo, like, some of the damage that had been done over the previous eight years. I I feel like there's something really interesting about having that aspect in that movie, even only as, like, a minor point, just highlighting, like no like this this election seems like it was a very cut and dry dry thing but there were people on the the left in that election who were just like so passionate about trying to uh end this kind of period of conservative rule and the knowledge that they were kind of like really unsuccessful in that situation i think adds a a certain poignancy all of those scenes where you know like because we all know yeah you know, the election was very handily won by Bush in terms of Nixon as well I think uh it's an obvious one obviously but I think Oliver Stones Nixon I find to be yeah a really fascinating movie because like like you say a lot of the other movies about Nixon like never really seem to know quite how to handle him because there's this you know image of him as this kind of like kind of tragic, almost Shakespearean creature, you know, where he was, like, an incredibly gifted politician and someone who, you know, genuinely did some good things over the course of his career, like founding the EPA and, you know, opening relations with China and things like that, but was, like, undone by his own paranoia, his own, you know, kind of, like, more venal qualities. And I feel like Nixon is a movie that kind of really tries to engage with every facet of the man in, like, Oliver Stone's really hyper, almost operatic approach to it, and I feel like that's one of those things where it's a pretty good combination of material and subject in that regard, more so than when, you know, he years later made W, where it seemed like he was, you know, using kid's gloves for an arguably more monstrous person. And whilst I feel like he... Against his better judgment, ends up feeling like a certain degree of sympathy for Nixon. Like there is definitely that sense of him just really trying to engage with the the, the, the how complicated a person he seemed to be, mm. which I think is something that a lot of movies about presidents never really achieve or aim for. Like they never seem to try and get every facet of it. Uh, I mean, sometimes that's hard. Like Abraham Lincoln, genuinely quite a good guy it's <laughs> very hard to like, make a movie that kind of like captures all those facets of him but yeah I, I, I do enjoy like um, Spielberg's Lincoln or the Lincoln movies like the, like by like John Ford Young Mr. Lincoln where they really engage with the fact that you know he was quite a funny guy like he liked to tell mm-hmm. weird like aimless stories and he like was very folksy and like those are the sort of things that I kind of like to see more is if you're going to tell a story about a president, like Don't just be like, ah, yes, they were a very kind of like serious, somber person and they were very important and they would like led the country well. It's like, yeah, you just made them into this like completely bloodless caricature. And that that doesn't really offer any insight compared to, you know, like I might as well just go and read a biography in that sense.
1: Mm. And then uh, just to move away from um, North America, as it Mm. were. Um, the other film that really struck me and I watched it a while ago I think when it it came out I think I even saw it in the showroom Ed there we go we mentioned the showroom everyone take a drink was uh, No with Gabriel Mm. Garcia um, Bernal and that was amazing in terms of a window into and this is the amazing thing about world cinema is that sometimes it is the only way that we ever find out about things (laughs) and to see I think it was the first film i ever saw about a referendum Mm -hmm. and it's a really gripping brilliant film and uh, you know if if you're a fan of democracy you you might like this um but i'm also trying to remember more than just the joke of like what are you going to see no oh okay sorry i asked (laughs) (laughs) but that is well worth a watch i don't know if it's on anywhere what streaming service or maybe it's um tucked away but that's, yeah, utterly gripping.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a movie that I found myself thinking of recently because obviously there was the uh, subsequent Chilean referendum recently where they decided they were going to like rewrite their constitution, which got a lot of people talking about No, which was similarly about a referendum, to essentially end the uh, Pinochet regime, more or less, or to, like, to move to a, a system of democracy. And it's one that I feel has a certain resonance with the U.S. election that has just happened because there, you know, that's a story of these activists fighting very hard to win this referendum and to kind of point their their country in a, on a new path. And in that instance, yeah, you know, I, I feel at the end of that movie, the thing about it that's really moving is like at the end of it, obviously. Gabriel Garcia, Bernal's character, as the person who's helped uh, orchestrate this, feels joy that he has been able to achieve this. But also there's that real sense of just, like, bone tiredness of being like, God, that was a huge task that we had to achieve. And that's kind of how I feel about this election, like, at the end of it. And I I certainly don't take credit for it, uh, although I did... Yeah, I I did vote, I did what I could, I donated money, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But, like, there's just that sense of, like, so much joy that we can begin to move on from the last four years in some way. Yeah. But at the same time, just a sense of just so, such exhaustion of the last year in particular, but just, like, what the last four years have been. So, like, as happy as I am, I'm also just kind of like, oh, God.
1: I think everyone's <laughs> very tired and still kind of wired. Mm. and uh, that's that's just to be expected water oh god yeah
0: <laughs> so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot for shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and that we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week
1: blind spotting now mm. in terms of films to kind of come out during the trump era that managed sort of not to mention him but I think within the context everyone will understand how it is very much Trump's America but also just living in America it's absolutely amazing I have not seen a film that has managed to sort of deftly weave so many different tones and have such kind of spot on analysis and just like sheer conveyance and expression mm. following um, Raphael Castus and David Diggs, who actually started writing this film together 10 years ago, and that it still is sort of pertinent now as they started writing it 10 years ago, shows something about the state of things. But in terms of like race and class, and oh my god, it's really funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I haven't laughed at a film like that in a really long time, and yet it still manages to hold weight when there is violence. It doesn't let up for a second, and I think it is though it came out I think a couple of years ago so towards the end of 2018, beginning of 2019 Yeah, I think it's one of the defining films about America and deserves a lot more appreciation and eyes on it and hopefully as a marker for where America still is and the giant gap of where it has to go but hey guys it's funny, remember how I said it's funny mm. I can't think of a better watch right now at this point in time
0: Yeah, that's, yeah you're right and just how funny that movie is and you just talked about it there, I just remembered the scene where they go to like, they go to like that really posh party at a house and then there's that one guy who thinks that Raphael Casal is like a hipster who's affecting all of his kind of like Oakland yeah. um, like style and swagger and uh, uh, and dialogue, a uh, dialect, and uh, that confrontation, <laughs> comfort- confrontation not ending well, yes. uh, and just that being just a really funny, uh, really well exe- executed uh, comic setup,
1: and the strength of uh, performance and dialogue mm. and everything. But yeah, like I haven't seen a film that struck me in its pure cinema, like you know, uh, basically shot composition and editing choices and how it manages to really powerfully show so much the effect of gentrification
0: yeah probably the best thing to come out of Hamilton I think, <laughs> that movie. just in in the sense that obviously they had been writing it for a long time but I feel like the heat off of Hamilton was probably what helped David Diggs get it made at, at that point Hard agree I'm gonna recommend a book that I've been reading and really enjoying which is This Isn't Happening by Stephen Hyden which is a book about the Radiohead album Kid A but more generally about how it fits into the culture of the early 21st century, uh, kind of using it as a jumping off point to talk about how that album, which is an album that's full of a sense of like alienation and the sense of like technology div- uh, uh, separating us from our humanity and things like that, how it feels like an album that seems to have like predicted so much of just what it feels like now to live in 2020 but it also is like very scrupulously researched in like drawing out the history of radiohead and their various influences and and there's lots of really fun digressions there's a really good bit where he just talks about how in their early days like radiohead were completely dismissed in the UK and like Suede were held up as like the, the the big new thing and like Stephen Iden just been like opining on how much he loved Suede at the time but how obviously that band's career went in a very different direction over the same time that Radioheads was and it's very entertaining it's very thoughtful. And I think it is great if anyone out there listens to Radiohead and, and is perhaps interested in particularly in Kid A, like an album that was very divisive when it came out and has since been kind of assessed by a lot of people as, as a real masterpiece. But also just in terms of you know someone exploring the culture of the last twenty years through one work of art, I think it's a really fascinating lens through which to kind of examine that stuff. So that is this isn't happening by Stephen Haydn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, us and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We're back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me. Ugh.